We're going to start Galatians 2. Galatians 2. <clears throat> Galatians, not relations. Usually it's pretty good, but that's, that one's not right. Okay. Um, all right, it should not surprise us that in the early days of Christianity, our great enemy, the devil, did everything in his power to crush the church and her leaders. Of course, he used persecution, but he also used lies. And as we get further into the letter to the Galatians, it's going to become obvious that the Apostle Paul is trying to deal with a false rumor. Some people were spreading lies about Paul's teaching, specifically that his teaching was different from the teaching of the other apostles, Peter, James, and John in particular. Last week we finished the, the first chapter of the letter and we saw that Paul defends his gospel by saying it came from God, not men. Okay, He didn't make this up. The other apostles didn't make this up. This came from God. And in chapter 2, Paul will defend the unity of the apostles' teaching that they all received the same message from God, and they're preaching the same message from God. They're not preaching different messages. And as we study this together, please keep this in mind. This is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is true. Because humanly speaking, the early church should not have survived. When you take into consideration the persecution and the lies and the opportunities for division, the struggle was real. It makes no earthly sense why this little religion, this little splinter of Judaism, is now the world's largest faith. And yet Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So Galatians chapter 2 verse 1, it says this. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, so 14 years after Paul's conversion, he travels to Jerusalem with two brothers in Christ. One of them is a Jew. Barnabas, and the other is a Gentile, Titus. And I love the boldness here. It's not obvious to us, but this was a very risky thing for Paul to do, possibly even dangerous. But Paul does this to make a statement. By bringing Titus with him, this is the statement, okay? We are not going to get together and argue about a theological theory. I'm going to put one of these people that you're talking about in front of you. Okay, so he's refusing to let Gentile Christians just be an idea. 
He says, I'm going to put one in front of you. These people have souls. This is our brother in Christ. You're going to have to deal with that. And I think that we would be served well to remember this in our own debates, especially when we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ who believe the same basic things about Jesus. This week I read a a great story about R.C. Sproul speaking at a church conference. And uh, R.C. Sproul, if you don't know who that is, he was a, a Presbyterian theologian, died a few years ago. And he was known for his teaching of Reformed theology. And we have one of his books on the book table. So he's someone that I respect. But during the question and answer time at this conference, someone asked Dr. Sproul if he thought he would see Billy Graham in heaven. Now, I assume that the person asking that question was concerned about the fact that Billy Graham was not reformed. And so Sproul, who was known for his quick wit, he said this, and I love his response. He said, no, I don't believe I will see Billy Graham in heaven. And of course, the whole audience gasped. Like, how could you say such a thing, right? But then he continued. He said, Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God, and I will be so far away from the throne of God that I will be lucky even to get a glimpse of him. Isn't that beautiful? That's unity in the gospel. And the reality is those two men did disagree on many things. But that's unity in the thing that matters the most. And I want to say that, I I say that believing that, in my opinion, Dr. Sproul had much better theology than Billy Graham. No lost respect for Billy Graham, right? But that's, I believe that. And it matters, but it is a matter of secondary importance, okay? So keep that in mind as we continue. Verse 2 says, I went up because of a revelation, Paul says, and I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running and had not run in vain. Now, to be clear, Paul does not doubt his message at this point, but he understands that the church would be divided if the apostles were preaching different messages. And notice it says he was not called back to Jerusalem because the apostles doubted him or questioned his message. Instead, it says that God led him to return by a revelation. Okay? Notice also that the apostles are having these discussions, at least at first, in private because they were eager to preserve the peace and unity of the church. And notice how Paul refers to the other apostles. He calls them 
those who seemed influential. I think that's an important correction for the way that we as modern Christians tend to think about our Christian leaders. Now, these men whom Paul is talking about were literal disciples of Jesus. Just imagine the things that they had experienced, right? One of them walked on water. (laughs) But Paul doesn't think of himself or the other apostles as self-important celebrities, does he? These men all understood their place in the kingdom. Jesus, everybody else. And so we should be careful of elevating leaders in the church to positions of great influence because not even the apostles were comfortable in that role. Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This, for me, is a mic drop moment. Okay? So Paul says, I took Timothy, or sorry, I took Titus to Jerusalem. We met with the other apostles. They didn't force circumcision on Titus. Okay? Boom. End of story, right? What now, Judaizers, would you say to this? Okay. Now, we haven't talked about this yet, but circumcision was the major practical issue here. Because many of the Jewish Christians were demanding that the new Gentile Christian men must also be circumcised. So they wanted to keep some of the ceremonial laws as requirements for new believers in Jesus. In other words, they wanted to keep Christianity in the Jewish world. And this group that was known as the Judaizers, they operated as a faction. They were desperate to control the early church to get this to happen. And notice that Paul is about to call them false brothers. Okay, So this was not a secondary issue. This was a primary issue. So verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery... To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, so here, Paul introduces the language of freedom and slavery, and that's going to be a very important subject in the letter. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential... Then he says again, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So again, Paul downplays the influence of men. These are apostles he's talking about. And then he says that they, quote, added nothing to me. So in other words, 
they did not change or edit Paul's gospel in any way. And I want to pause here because there are really two ways of changing the gospel. Well, really there's infinite ways of changing the gospel, but two basic ways of changing the gospel. And both of them are equally dangerous. Paul here is concerned with people trying to add something to the gospel. Okay? And so what I want to say to you is that it is very common for Christians and for churches and for entire denominations to add things to the gospel. One of the things that we may try to add, probably the most common thing, is some sort of moral requirement. And that's what's happening here, right? They're trying to add a moral action, a requirement to belief in the gospel. And we might do that for two reasons. The first reason we might do that is simply because of bad theology. It is common for people to misunderstand the nature of grace and poison the gospel with some sort of works righteousness. And that begins as bad theology, right? And that's not an issue of secondary importance. That sort of bad theology destroys Christianity altogether. So some theology matters to the point that if you get it wrong, you might as well not be a Christian. But we also run the risk of distorting the gospel when we are unwilling to adapt our preferences and our traditions for the sake of the lost. This one's a little bit more subtle and a little more common even in churches that preach the gospel, okay? And I want to suggest to you that this is the influence of conservatism. If we load up new believers with expectations that are cultural and not biblical, then the gospel can easily become lost in the confusion. And it may not be our intention to create a new form of works righteousness, but it can, be, it can happen anyway, right? And so we must be careful of adding to the gospel by telling new believers that you know, this is something you also have to do to be Christian. That's the first thing, and that's, that's what Paul's actually kind of addressing in Galatians. But um, we must also be careful of subtracting from the gospel. And even though he doesn't specifically address this concern in our text today, he is going to later address it in the letter. And so I want to make mention of it here. Many Christians will subtract from the message in an attempt to make Christianity more attractive. And that is the influence of liberalism. It's become common in the last hundred years for some professing Christians to say that they love Jesus, but they disagree with Paul. And what they're usually referring to is Paul's teaching on certain matters, especially when it comes to things like sexual sin, which in our modern society is a, is a very triggering concept for a lot of people, right? 
But something I want to encourage you to consider is this. You will find no contradiction at all between the teaching of Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles. None. Not about the gospel or really any issue at all. They never say anything that contradicts anything else in Scripture. And what that means is that there really is only one true version of Christianity because the New Testament is completely unified in its message. Now, of course, we can and do argue about who has the closest interpretation of that true version of Christianity, right? We do. But what I'm trying to say to you is this. Ignoring parts of the Bible that we don't like is a dangerous practice. And in some respects, all of us, because of our sin, we are tempted to downplay or minimize the reality of sin and judgment in order to make Christianity sound more accepting and tolerant. But when we do that, the gospel loses its power. Jesus demands our repentance. And He does not allow us to define what we're okay repenting from. That much is clear in Scripture. He doesn't suggest it, right? He says we are in mortal peril because of it. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And this is what He died to save us from, right? Death, sin, hell, the wrath of God. We cannot put that in the closet to try to make Christianity sound better to people on the outside. We must be careful of adding or subtracting anything from the gospel. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And this is where we're going to end our reading of the text for today. I want to look briefly at verse 10 and then we're going to go back and consider the rest of the story as a whole. So Peter, James, and John encourage Paul to continue preaching to the Gentiles 
even as they continue to lead and shepherd and preach the gospel to the Jewish people. And the only thing that they ask him to do is to remember the poor. And this is not a passing comment, okay? Concern for the poor is, of course, a, vi- a big, like a major theme in the New Testament as a whole. It is an important response to the gospel. Okay, so if you believe you've been shown grace, even when you didn't deserve it, it will lead you to do things like show grace to others, which includes concern for the poor. And so followers of Jesus cannot help but care for the needs of the poor. As Paul says, this is the very thing I was eager to do, right? And the early churches, their witness, one of the reasons that it had such an impact in the Roman Empire is because they were known for their generosity. But this request had a special purpose. And the reason that it's here is because the Jewish churches were typically much poorer than the Gentile churches. And so they're asking Paul, as he goes out into the wealthier parts of the Roman Empire, and he's discipling people, they're asking him to use his influence in the church to help bring unity between those two worlds, not only in theology, but also in support. So what they're saying is, teach the wealthy churches to help the poor churches. And one of the things that I love about Presbyterianism is that we do this. Now, not perfectly, but we do help our sister churches, and we, as, as Christ Fellowship, we have benefited greatly from the generosity of other churches in our, in our region who care about what we're doing and want us to succeed and want the gospel to be preached in Horn Lake. So just a quick side note there about verse 10, but let's go back and kind of look at the text as a whole. Paul's argument continues to reinforce the idea that there's only one gospel. There's only one true message that we must receive and believe in order to become a child of God. Okay, so that's, that's the point still. And I understand that there are many churches, there are many denominations around the world, and we disagree about all sorts of things. But there is only one gospel. And the things that are necessary for salvation are sufficiently clear in Scripture. There can be no debate about the basic content of the gospel message, okay? So to say it simply, our need for repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, God created us, we fell into sin, that God's solution was to send His only Son to die in our place and to be raised from the dead so that we might have hope in His resurrection. Any church or denomination 
that adds or subtracts something from the gospel message in terms of how we are saved ceases to be a church, a true church. It becomes a false church. It becomes like every other religion in history, which is dependent on some form of works righteousness or more concerned with human traditions than the glory of God. And yet, the true church, the gospel-believing, gospel-teaching church, has had many different expressions throughout history, even in the first century. Why? It's because of what Paul describes as our freedom in Christ. We must resist any attempts by professing Christians to alter the message of the gospel, either by adding to it or subtracting from it. And while we may stand firm in our convictions about other things that we believe the Bible teaches, we should also be slow to condemn professing Christians who disagree with us on secondary issues. This is because God has given the church some wide margins, especially in terms of cultural expression. We have some very, very important things in common, and we must preserve those things. And yet we're also very different. So how do we live in that tension? I would say very simply... We must condemn the things God condemns, but we must also accept the people whom God accepts as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must lay no further burden upon fellow believers except that which Scripture clearly teaches about the gospel, careful to maintain unity in Christ. This is why you can be adopted into Christ fellowship by a simple profession of faith in Jesus. You don't have to agree with me about Reformed theology or infant baptism. In fact, you may disagree with me uh, or our denomination on all sorts of things with some exceptions, okay? Things that strike at the heart of the gospel, we, we're not okay with. So, for instance, if the Bible calls it sin, then we're going to stick to its sin. Okay? We're not bending on that because that would mean subtracting from the gospel. It would mean drawing lines where, in different ways than God has drawn lines. But we're also trying to be careful not to add any burdens to you that Scripture does not add. You're welcome here, even in disagreement about other important things. As, uh, as my friend and pastor uh, Chris Accardi wrote this morning, he said, it's more important to have saving faith in the Lord Jesus than to know exactly how you got it. And that's true. Think about the four apostles who were gathered 
in that private room to discuss the content of the gospel. So you've got Paul, Peter, James, and John. And all four of them wrote part of the New Testament. And when you read their writings, it's pretty clear their writing styles are very different from one another. They're very different men. Each of them concerned with different problems in the church. They emphasize different doctrines and practices. Now, of course, they never contradict each other, as I've already said, probably only because they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If they were writing as men, there'd probably be all sorts of contradictions in their words. Because these men were far from perfect, as we will learn next week about Peter. But the Holy Spirit protected the message of the gospel that day so that it might make its way to the ends of the earth so that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue would worship the risen King, Jesus Christ. Amen? Thanks be to God for His grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, above all things, we unite in the truth of Your Gospel, the good news, which is a free offer of salvation from sin and death and judgment in Your name, in Your blood alone. Jesus, You offer Yourself as living water for the thirsty. And each of us needs to drink. Each of us needs to repent and to believe that You are the only true King. And so, Father, we pray for grace to hear the message of the Gospel and to respond to it in faith. We pray that You would lead us in paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. We pray all of this for Your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Let's stand together and sing.